think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico and I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. So this week on The Magnificast, we're talking about the true meaning of Christmas. Um, we found it. <laughs> We we found it this time around, and we're going to tell you about what it is. Every year, right before Christmas, uh, my family has a little bit of a tradition. Um, we decorate our house, we make some cookies, we eat the cookies, and then we watch Charlie Brown's Christmas. Dean, you ever seen Charlie Brown's Christmas? I have. It's my mom's favorite. Oh man, it's great. It's uh, it's great because it's like twenty minutes, and Charlie Brown figures out what Christmas is all about. So, uh, if you haven't seen Charlie Brown's Christmas, uh, this is basically what the like the plot is. Um, Charlie Brown goes and asks all his friends, "What's Christmas all about?" And every one of his friends are like, "Listen, Charlie Brown, you're an idiot. It's about getting stuff. It's about getting stuff, you dumb kid." Uh, and at the end, uh, Charlie Brown's friend uh, Linus is like, "Well, it's actually about Jesus." But we all know the truth. Uh, Christmas is not really about Jesus. It's actually about finally relinquishing all the cool gifts you've been buying for other people since Thanksgiving. Yeah, sorry, Chuck. You're wrong on this one. Uh, all joking aside for now, um, Christmas has like a huge identity crisis in Western culture. Uh, we don't have to tell you that, but, you know, it, it, it's obvious. Uh, it's a kind of constant reminder of both of like our Christian heritage in the West um, and also the omnipresence of global capitalism. It's like a really awkward kind of thing. Um, and in this episode, we want to think through the implications of Christmas as a capitalist holiday uh, and maybe look to at how Christmas like both fits and kind of doesn't fit within that um, kind of role that it plays. And to do this, we're going to talk about the dude who uh, knows the most about consumption, a French philosopher named Jean Baudrillard. Yeah, that's right. So we read a little bit of Baudrillard's The Consumer Society. If you don't know much about him, Jean Baudrillard was a French philosopher, sociologist, media theorist, I don't know, bunch of ists. Uh, he's really well known for writing a book called Simulacra and Simulation, which is uh, the book that the movie The Matrix is based on, but not really very much at all. <laughs> um <laughs> Simulacan Simulation is a book that is like pretty wild and it's uh, super depressing also when you get into it. And it's, uh, you know, I would say more than 25% of that book is about Disneyland. Um, <laughs> it's crazy. Before Baudrillard got overwhelmingly depressing and, uh, and just like kind of off the wall, he wrote a lot of stuff about sociology and consumption and like what, uh, what it means to consume and why we consume. Uh, Baudrillard is a pretty interesting character. He's like he's one of those thinkers that is um, like a post sixty eight kind of thinker in the sense that he was really influenced by the student protests in uh, May and June of nineteen sixty eight in France. Um, but he's also like completely dispossessed of politics because of the failures of those protests. So he's not a Marxist. He's not a liberal. He's not a socialist. He's not an anarchist. He's just a dude that's like waiting for the world to come undone. And I think that's kind of the most you can say about his politics. If you're looking for some kind of programmatic political project, you should definitely not read Baudrillard like whatsoever because he doesn't have anything for you. Um, <laughs> but in light of all that, you might be wondering like why we're we even wasting our time reading him. Um, while you shouldn't look to him for politics, he's still really good at describing the world and sort of the contemporary situation. And he's like a pretty interesting writer and definitely pretty funny too. 
He's also a thinker who you can have some pretty productive disagreements with. So even though he's not a Marxist or even like a, I don't know if you'd even call him a leftist because he's not really political in almost any way. Um, he just is, he's a good describer of the world. And he is also someone that I think it like, you know, if you find yourself disagreeing with him, you find some interesting thoughts out of that disagreement. Yeah. He's also interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, kind of relevant to us so he's not political but he engages politics all the time uh and he internalizes and then kind of reinterprets like a lot of sort of marxist um and analysis of society in particular and also he's not a christian uh but christianity is kind of all throughout his writing it functions as a metaphor for a lot of things or he'll borrow the language of it to make a point he had a relationship with Virilio, who we've talked about a lot more in this podcast, and they have some really interesting differences. Um, Virilio talks about it in a few places, uh, and some of them have to do with kind of the way that they both relate to Christianity and politics. Um, but anyway, uh, like Matt was saying, you can have some really productive disagreements with Baudrillard, but you can also learn a lot about kind of like the existential life that we find ourselves in through reading him. So we're going to do that with respect to Christmas time. Yeah, for sure. So uh, we read The Consumer Society, uh, a book written by Baudrillard in the 1970s. So it was sort of before his very postmodern phase. And during his, uh, I don't know, I don't know. I, he doesn't have phases, really. It's just before he he got like really influenced <laughs> by postmodernism. Um, so The Consumer Society is a sociology, uh, sort of sociology, a French sociology. So it's kind of philosophical in most ways. Um, <laughs> about conspicuous consumption and abundance and uh, time and leisure and what all of these things mean for us. Um, so we spent a lot of time kind of thinking through the beginning of the book, a section called The Formal Liturgy of the Object. There's the first hint of that good biblical sort of language that's there. Um, but we'll talk about a lot of it. Overall, what this book gives us is maybe just like some conceptual handles for the ways that we can think through um, our society of consumption. Um, and it's probably here that's good to note just like, uh, again, that he is not a Marxist. If he were, we he would say that we don't live in a society of consumption, but, you know, one that's based on production. But Baudrillard believes exactly the opposite, that consumption is something that has definitely subsumed production. And uh, this means a lot for the ways that we understand ourselves. And like, you know, as a Marxist myself, I don't think that Baudrillard is entirely wrong either. Um, but I have some other disagreements. Anyways, the first thing that Baudrillard says that I think is kind of cool that will get you a good feel for what he's about is this. There's all around us today a kind of fantastic conspicuousness of consumption and abundance, constituted by the multiplication of objects, services, and material goods. And this represents something of a fundamental mutation in the ecology of human species. Strictly speaking, the humans of the age of affluence are surrounded not so much by other human beings as they were in previous ages, but by objects. Their daily dealings are now not so much with their fellow humans, but rather on a rising statistical curve with the reception and manipulations of goods and services. So uh, this is a, a really interesting point. This is exactly the first line of his book. Uh, so what he wants us to start thinking through is that um, we live in and around and with objects and certainly other people. But those objects play a really important role in our life. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because he wrote this in the 70s, and you could probably say this is more obvious now in the 21st century. Um, you know, this is like before the digital revolution, like people didn't have smartphones and stuff, um, and he's already kind of noticing this. Um, there's a lot in the background here, obviously, about like wealth and how do people get so many objects and how are so many objects made. And, you know, there's a lot of questions about the Industrial Revolution and the First and Second World War and all that kind of stuff. But uh, even though we might want to say something more about how like people have always been surrounded by objects or something, um, I think Baudrillard is making a good point uh, that we do find ourselves kind of surrounded in a world of objects all the time. And that situation actually makes us think and act and feel certain ways about ourselves and about those objects. Yeah, totally. I mean, we live in a time where, I mean, people have always had their objects and, and like human artifacts, but we live in a time of like not only mass production, but like, you know, hyper mass production. It, like if you can think of any weird thing, you can probably find that weird thing on Amazon somewhere. Um, right. So, uh, the way that we live with objects is, I think, of a different intensity than maybe it has been in the past, even than it has been in the 1970s. Um, you know, that was a time before smartphones and the Internet. And I think we 
uh, still live amongst objects in a little bit of a different way. Well, um, moving on past that, uh, Baudrillard goes on to say that like our, our life is so governed by objects and we live, you know, sort of by objects so thoroughly that we live by object time. Uh, Baudrillard goes on to say, by this, I mean, we live at the pace of objects, live to the rhythm of their ceaseless succession. So um, I think we can make a few notes about this too. Like to live by object time, I think he means like a lot of things. Like um, we could say that, you know, we live by, um, we live by the seasons of the year uh, where we consume different things. We live by the seasons of the year, like governed through mass media. Um, you know, uh, we even live guided by like the obsolescence of certain objects or like what objects go in and out of style. So uh, in that way, like, uh, we live in a capitalist rhythm or like a liturgy of life that is completely dominated by like the whims of like what is being sold to us and what we're like, you know, willing to buy. Uh, so I think there's something really interesting here that we can draw out where, you, you know, uh, Christianity has a particular rhythm of life as well. There's a liturgy of church. There's like a liturgy of the church year and Christmas is definitely part of that year, but it's completely subsumed by object time in the sense that like, you know, the liturgy that we live by isn't the liturgy of the church, but it's the liturgy of capitalism. Yeah, I think Christmas is an especially interesting thing to think about here because historically it's pretty relatively recent that Christmas was even such a big deal for Christians. Uh, like it used to be the case that Easter was kind of the big giant holiday around which everything sort of pivots. And Christmas was like a thing um, for sure, but not nearly as kind of socially significant as it became. Um, in fact, there's a really interesting history of like the war on Christmas uh, <laughs> that was perpetuated by Christians first, um, kind of not wanting Christmas to be so celebratory. Uh, there's a really interesting like political history about Christmas. Um, but especially in the U.S., like... Uh, the way in which Christmas gets associated with different kinds of seasons of consumption is really fascinating. Uh, people probably think of like the Coca-Cola Santa Claus. Um, I don't know if that's still like a advertising meme that's really obvious anymore, but um, it has been around for a long time that uh, Santa, you know, Christmas time Santa is like drinking a specific brand of soda pop. Um, and that's like a big deal or, uh, you know, stores kind of end up um, like getting rid of all their excess inventory before tax season in the spring with like a massive purge at Christmas time with sales and stuff like that. Um, all of that is like within the last 150 years that Christmas has become a, a market holiday. Um, so, yeah, like object time has like literally completely reoriented how we all relate to Christmas, how we all relate to a specifically Christian uh, historical holiday which is pretty wild yeah super wild <laughs> it sucks <laughs> i mean like i don't know like you have to you have to live your life some way and uh i just think that like you know living your life based on like the whims of sales like is not great but that's the life yeah. we live <laughs> um yeah, well, maybe uh, I'll read this other quote from Baudrillard that I think helps draw out some of the theological valences in some of his writing. Uh, and it's really fun to think about with Christmas as well. So he writes, uh, These are our valleys of Canaan, where in place of milk and honey, streams of neon flow down over ketchup and plastic. But no matter, we find here the fervid hope that there should be not enough, but too much, and too much for everyone. Um I mean, this is like the most Christmassy thing I can think of. Maybe not neon flowing over ketchup and plastic, but like, I don't know, tinsel flowing over gingerbread persons <laughs> and, <laughs> and like plastic garbage that you buy for, you know, your friends or your kids. Um, and the idea is that all that kind of stuff is supposed to be more and more abundant every year, right? Like um, there's always more statistics on the buying season and where are people buying stuff and are online sales happening more than physical sales, all that kind of like weird tracing of that is premised on a logic that like you know christmas is the time to buy like the shop till you drop kind of of moment um and i love the idea of like replacing these biblical metaphors like a land flowing with milk and honey with just like the complete opulence of like capitalism um saying that you know it's it's not milk and honey that we actually desire it's like shitty stuff like neon and ketchup and plastic that we actually desire that's sort of the promised land you know a land where all the garbage is equally available to everyone uh and you could just appreciate like the most banal um and disgusting things uh as as much as you want yeah i really do appreciate baudrillard's uh re like rhetoric at this point because it is um 
I mean, replacing the sort of the plenty of Canaan with like the the too muchness of capitalism is is interesting enough. But then like uh, the words, uh, yeah, streams of neon flow down over ketchup and plastic is like the grossest thing I can actually imagine. Uh, ketchup not in a bottle is just, is like just a disgusting idea. It's like visceral <laughs> and like it's like gelatinous and slimy. Ugh. Real, yeah, really, really um, yuck, really yucking me out here. <laughs> uh, I couldn't help but thinking of a ton of like Christmas movies that I've been watching this month while we were reading this book. Um, this one just made me really think of the uh, Jim Carrey version of The Grinch. Um, I love it because he like you know he lives in the dump in Mount Crumpet and uh, he's like always getting everyone's trash. And the things that he complains about about Christmas and about how the Who's celebrate it are like completely sympathetic in every way. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's like completely disgusted by all the uh, like the sheer stupidity of it and uh by by virtue of the fact that he lives in a dump he like sees all the chris all the christmas presents that actually just get thrown away and like all the packaging and stuff and uh, he's kind of like built his home in the shell of like the detritus of, of christmas capitalism uh i don't know there's probably a lot more you could say about that film but uh, i find the uh the the tiny hearted grinch a very sympathetic character yeah for sure he's the good guy of the film <laughs> if, if only he was like successful at destroying christmas you know <laughs> that's right maybe next year grinch maybe next year you'll get him <laughs> uh just wants to but he wants to be invited into that pattern of consumption right uh the grinch himself's gotta carve that roast beast yeah um that is true grinch please no don't do it <laughs> don't give in <laughs> grinch no <laughs> At the top of the episode, I did mention that there was a good conceptual handle within Baudrillard that we can use to start thinking through objects and their meaning. And listen, now I'm going to deliver on that. So um, Baudrillard, you know, starts off just kind of telling us that uh, we, we are people who consume a lot of things. Uh, but those things, uh, we consume them for a reason. It's not just because, like, we want stuff, but there's something deeper going on. So Baudrillard, at this time in his life, is, like, drawing a lot on semiotics. Uh, so the first like three or four books he writes are all sort of semiotic focused. Um, if you're interested in this way of thinking, you should definitely pick up a book called System of Objects. Or um, there's another book that he wrote at, right after that called Political Economy of the Sign. So if you're into se- semiotics and consumption, those books are for you. Uh, but here, this is what he says in this book, The Consumer Society. Few objects today are offered alone without a context of objects which speaks them. And this changes the consumer's relation to the object. He no longer relates to a particular object in its specific utility, but to a set of objects in its total signification. Washing machine, refrigerator, and dishwasher taken together have a different meaning from the one each has individually as an appliance. So this is a pretty interesting observation or uh, description of the world. Singular objects belong to a rhetoric or maybe like a system of objects, that's Baudrillard's word, uh, that lead toward consumptive paths. So, like, you can't just buy a new fridge. Like, you've also got to update all of your other appliances along with them. Because, you know, like, your new fridge is, like, silvery and new and has, like, a, a ice dispenser or whatever. And you need uh, you need the right kind of stove to go along with it. Um, <laughs> I, I guess it's just, like, a an interesting thing that there's, like, a, a rhetoric of objects that, you know, exist um, symbolically, but we don't really ever have to speak them. Um, he goes on to kind of make this... Uh, point a little bit more clear saying clothing machines and toiletries thus constitute object pathways which establish inertial constraints in the consumer he will move logically from one object to another so uh, this idea of consumptive paths and their signification is really a big deal so like what's interesting is the way that objects signify meaning and they're like linked as types of nonverbal and material arguments that like you know you don't have to even you don't have to really even make the pitch that if you're going to buy toothpaste to somebody that they're also going to buy a toothbrush. They're just going to do it because they need both. The, the objects themselves constitute a system or like a web that can like convicts people, that entraps people in the idea that they need to buy, you know, not just a toothbrush, but like the like an electric toothbrush or like uh, or charcoal toothpaste or whatever. Just like more and more consumption. These objects work together to create. Yeah. Uh, a type of synergy. Um, yeah. Crazy. But that's an interesting <laughs> idea that's kind of at the bottom of all of what Baudrillard says about um, consumption. Yeah, and that idea that you have to sort of buy in order to buy um, is a really interesting logic within Christmas time, too, I think. Uh, like, I mean, I've had the experience of trying to buy a gift for someone and being like, ah, oh, I don't know if I should buy them this because I actually don't know if they have this or that other thing, um, which would make this gift, you know, pointless or like not not as cool or usable. Um 
Or like you buy someone something and it actually is premised on the case that they're going to keep on buying other things. Like uh, one year I bought my sister like a Chemex coffee pour over thing. Um, but like now she has to buy like coffee filters for it that are like special and specific all the time. And uh, she has to like buy them off the internet because they don't sell them in the like rural small town that we live in. Um, but it makes her feel like she's, you know, participating in a really cool thing because she is because pour overs make really good coffee. Um, but it, it like pulls her into a whole kind of web of like consumption and uh yeah it's wild or like when you're a kid and your your parents give you like a i don't know like a toy and it's supposed to go with like some other toy but you don't have that toy it's like really disappointing (laughs) and it makes you want to go get that other toy uh it's weird how um i like budra's word here like this object pathway um you get put on a path right and it leads you down to further consumption yeah right i remember one year my parents got me a sega genesis and it was the uh, I mean, it was the best Christmas I ever had, probably. <laughs> um, but it was it was really funny because like they bought me a Sega Genesis and I had Sonic and I was like, okay, cool, I'm gonna play Sonic, that's great. Um, but then like when they bought me that, there's definitely like uh, there's an inertia to that thing that like led me to buy you know a thousand other video games for it, right? <laughs> and like more controllers and uh, you know uh, encourages like other people to come over and play it and buy their own video games or whatever. Yeah, it's weird how that happens. Yeah. So, I, yeah, he says, uh, Baudrillard uses the word inertial constraints. And I think that's a really good way of thinking about it. That, like, you know, you buy something and it propels you forward to buy all of these other things. It really makes you think, like, I, I mean, it gives a language to, like, what we already know to be true, right? That, like, we we are not all rational actors just buying things because we need them or something. You know, we don't you don't go to Target and buy, you know, a thing because you actually need that thing. You go to Target and you buy, like, you know, 30 things you don't need or... 30 things that you just think you need because you've already bought, you know, their constituent sort of uh, object network parts or something. Yeah, exactly. And it's all premised, too, on this kind of logic of uh, not just abundance, but also waste, right? That um, you buy this thing, which makes you buy this other thing, but maybe you buy the wrong one uh, and you like can't return it. So it just like sits around, like does nothing. It's like a complete waste uh, or you like throw it away or whatever. Um, or like you buy this thing and that entails buying like a bunch of batteries to keep around, which you then like throw in the garbage can, even though like they're not, (laughs) not good for the planet to just be like sitting in a landfill somewhere. Right. Um, But it doesn't really matter. Like you're on the object pathway and it's leading you that way. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that that observation leads to understanding one of like the huge contradictions of capitalism that like the. Uh, you know, people people will say all the time that oh, capitalism is so efficient. It gave you things like iPhones or whatever. But like it also gave you a system where your phone breaks every two years and you have to buy a new one, um, which is like right. uh, exactly the type of inertia that Baudrillard is talking about. Like, you know, you bought an iPhone and then uh, two years in, like the iPhone slows like way down. You can't you can't send your tweets or the, sc- the screen's cracked in 30 different ways or whatever. So you buy a new iPhone. But like you're doing that. Um, you're doing that because that's the way the iPhones were designed. It's not like um, it's not like someone, you know, Steve Jobs. It's not like he uh, set out to build a phone that would last you forever. He set out to build you build a phone that would last for like you know two years or whatever. That's why yeah, the, you know, the cycle for cell phones are two years. It's not it's not because um, you know that's when you should get a new phones when because they want you to buy a, a new phone. Yeah, I mean, essentially, they're like they're buying lead time to design a new phone for you, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, uh, they give you a phone and that gives them two years to give you a new phone. And there you go. Um, that's the, that's the most, um, that's like the most productive and rational economic system that we've come up with so far. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, I also think too, just about um, how Christmas itself builds certain production uh, pathways that are really awkward. Like, uh, okay, you have to buy like a bunch of wrapping paper, right? Um, and that means you have to buy like tape and you have to buy scissors and, uh, you might have to like buy tissue paper. Um, you might have to buy like certain Christmas ornaments or like, uh, Christmas decorations to make you like feel like it's Christmas time. Um, you have to like buy so many things just to like accomplish Christmas time. Um, and you have to like rebuy all that stuff, right? Like you, you wrap someone's gift in a bunch of like non-recyclable garbage paper and then it just like sits, uh, in a landfill forever solely so that you could like, give someone the feeling of christmas oh man what if that's a great idea for invention where you it'd just be like um reusable christmas wrapping paper <laughs> yeah yeah just a nice cloth bag you reuse every year 
<laughs> or like a give back uh like within a, a, a circle of friends oh that's a good point too tm 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 <laughs> tm 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 <laughs> that's my idea <laughs> <laughs> this is our object pathway <laughs> but like you buy it once and it's just good for life so it's better <laughs> It's the right path, true path, the the narrow path that leads to life, not the wide path that leads to the destruction of wrapping paper. <laughs> so there's a lot going on with consumption. Um, lots of like weird illogicalness about it, for sure. That should change the way we think about it. Um, but Baudrillard goes on to say that consumption is not just like illogical, but it's governed by a form of magical thinking. He goes on to say, daily life is governed by a mentality based on miraculous thinking, a primitive mentality insofar as that it has been defined as being based on a belief in the omnipotence of thoughts, that what we have in this case is a belief in the omnipotence of signs, um, where affluence is, in effect, merely the accumulation of the signs of happiness. Okay, so this is a really big idea behind um, consumption, and it kind of goes along with what you were just saying, that, like, you know, you're not buying, um, you you know, you you go to the store and you buy something, but you're not buying that thing for its, like, use value. You're buying that thing for its sign value, for, like, what it means culturally. So consumption for Baudrillard has subsumed the process of production. Again, this is, like, why he isn't a Marxist. But what's really interesting here is that consumption isn't even about acquiring things. It's not even about having, like, an object that you've, like, desired or something. Like, the physical object is, is kind of meaningless in a lot of ways. But instead, uh, it's about the acquisition of signs of happiness, that you buy things because you think that, um, you know, affluence or having a lot of things um, will make you, like, happier or that will, like, at least sort of do do the presentation of happiness. Um, So, you know, the thing itself is just, like, whatever. uh, But what that thing means is what we're really after. I think this is a really important and interesting thing that we do and this is why he thinks it's magical because you know the physical thing whatever the material reality of it it's you know fine but the thing that we're really after is about sort of like the magical part of that thing the thing that like raises our social our social status or whatever um so there's a lot to be said here a lot of examples we could definitely pull out uh naomi klein has a really great book called no logo that i know dean and i both really like that makes this point really well Naomi Klein's book focuses on like the idea of brands and branding and the way like in this particular iteration of capitalism, that's like the thing that we really care about or that's like what we're really buying. You know, you go and you buy Adidas shoes or whatever, and you're not really buying them because, I mean, you know, maybe you think they're great or maybe you think they're like not great or whatever. It doesn't matter. Uh, But you're buying them because of like their specific brand. It's like the you buy adidas shoes because like you want to be a part of that magical thinking it's exactly why you don't buy shoes at like walmart or whatever i mean if you do it's chill i don't care but i'm just saying like you know people are more likely to buy shoes that are branded that have that sort of um magical thinking about it uh attached because it's um about the accumulation of signs of happiness yeah uh i remember one time when i was like a really angsty teenager um and also an evangelical and i was really worried about um I don't know, being like the world or whatever. Uh, my mom was like going to buy me this shirt or something from some store in the mall. I forget what it was. Uh, I f- even forget what the store was. Uh, but she was like, hey, this is like a really nice shirt. And I was like, yeah, but it has like this gigantic uh, like brand on it. Um, it was like, I don't know, like some American Eagle shirt or whatever. And I was like, I don't I don't want to like, you know, wear someone else's brand. I don't want to like advertise for them for free. That's not what I'm about. Uh, and I thought that I was being like really, you know, radical or whatever. But at the same time, like when, especially when you're adolescent, like all the decisions you make with your fashion are essentially like trying to surround yourself with the signs of some kind of uh, subculture that you identify with or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what's so great about Baudrillard's point is that, um, like, it isn't just completely obviously branded or like logo kinds of things, even though that's obviously a huge part of it. Um, it's like everything that you buy is some kind of attempt to uh, signal that you are like uh, this kind of person and not that kind of person or something. So whether you're like walking around as like a billboard for some store in the mall or like walking around with, you know, like a plain T-shirt or something, you're trying to signify something about your own happiness or what you think counts as happiness. Yeah, exactly. So like, you know, if you got big Jinko jeans on and a backwards hat and like sunglasses, like we get it, you vape. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, 
and uh, the the precise vape by which you vape. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sig- signals something about your happiness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's such an interesting thing that, like, I mean, Bo- in Baudrillard's thought, he like kind of divorces objects from their like signification, and I think that there are probably some philosophical problems with that. But like, listen, um, we're not going to get into it. Probably, um, <laughs> it does remind me, however, of another really important quote from someone who's not uh, Baudrillardian, but is kind of related in sort of a genealogical way. Um, there's an anarchist philosopher who we've talked about on this podcast a handful of times named Rule of Anayim. He was one of the situationist sort of dudes, um, you know, who was alive at exactly the same time as Baudrillard. He's actually still alive, I think, and he outlived Baudrillard. So there you go. So, so who's right, you know? <laughs> Anyways, uh, Vanayim has this uh, quote that goes like this. To be rich nowadays merely means to possess a large number of poor objects, which is a quote that I really like um, because it, it kind of gets at exactly it, it gets at what exactly Baudrillard means is that like um, the things that we want, like we don't want them for what they are. We want them for what they say. And that is pretty fascinating. Yeah, it really is. Uh, Well, one cool thing about this book too, is that Baudrillard tries to explore why that is, or like how we got here. Um, Not exhaustively, but sort of suggestively. And um, I really love this kind of analysis he does of a a proliferation of ideas about well-being Mm -hmm. or like a generalized kind of happiness. Um, So here's a quote from the book. He says, the revolution of well-being is an heir to or executor of the bourgeois revolution or simply of any revolution which proclaims human equality as its principle without being able or without wishing fundamentally to bring that equality about. Hmm. The democratic principle is then transferred from a real equality of capacities, of responsibilities, of social chances, and of happiness, in the full sense of the term, to an equality before the object and other manifest signs of social, social success and happiness. This is the democracy of social standing, the democracy of the TV, the car, and the stereo, an apparently concrete, but in fact equally formal democracy, which, beyond contradictions and in social inequalities, corresponds to the real or to the formal democracy enshrined in the Constitution. Um, so this is like a really interesting way to talk about why capitalism feels like a universal thing, or like why some people argue that it is, uh, or like an egalitarian system of equality and liberty, right? Like uh, everybody is sort of equal before the objects that they consume. Um, barring the question of, like, who gets to consume them. Uh, Baudrillard, though, I think helps us ask, like, whether or not this is a democracy worth having. Uh, So, for example, like, maybe one way to put it would be everyone is equal before our Christmas presents, but, like, Santa Claus doesn't visit all the houses (laughs) with the same exact toys. Well, I mean, you know, Baudrillard is talking about equality, but it's, I I mean, I think the way that we translate this into uh, American is by talking about this, like, with regards to freedom of choice. And that, that is, like, you know, what we mean by freedom. So that we right. have, you know, we're, not only are we equal before our things or whatever, but we have the freedom to choose our things. And that's supposed to be like something that really means something. Uh, but surprise, the choice that we can make is like, you know, uh, working or starving. <laughs> so, um, or, you know, it's it's to buy like the choice is to buy, you know, X, Y or Z thing, not actual freedom and control of our labor or something. Um, right. So it's it's interesting. It's like a, a really good uh, a really good way to talk about choice and freedom and equality uh, and like what that means uh, with that specific sort of capitalist context. Yeah, and it helps too to I think pull out a little further what is going on when like you know suburban like moms and dads talk about capitalism um, because you can understand it as a revolution of well being, right? Like obviously it's ideologically bananas. Like it's not. Uh, actual thought through position um but the premise on which it rests is basically like well i could go out and buy like this lawnmower or that lawnmower because i have the capital that allows me to make those choices Mm -hmm. like yeah maybe i can't choose between like which yacht i want to buy but you know like whatever this is sort of the the life that i've made for myself right so like within a certain framework um there's an acceptable level of like abundance of choice um even though that's a like a false or or maybe like an illusion of of abundance and an illusion of choice um you can sort of understand why people like cling to it or just like a meaninglessness of choice too though you know like yeah like you have a thousand different options about like where you want to eat for lunch but they're all going to make you sick as shit so it doesn't matter (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) um all right so here here's another really great one and i think this kind of uh makes me think a little bit more about santa and i want to want to talk about santa claus a lot um when we talk about consumption so Baudrillard goes on to say 
In everyday practice, the blessings of consumption are not experienced as resulting from work or from a production process. They are experienced as a miracle. Um, so one on one sense, like this is kind of an easy point to understand. Like when you go to the store and you think about buying something, usually people don't think about like the production chains involved in getting that something to the store such that you could buy it. You just buy it, right? You can you buy it for the purpose of consumption. Who really cares where it came from? Uh, even if you're like an ethical consumer or something, or you think twice about where you're getting something or how you're getting it, uh, nevertheless, like, um, the whole sort of global chain of production is kind of obscured by a global chain of consumption of desire or want. Um, but the, the bit about experiencing it as a miracle, I think is especially kind of interesting. Um, I don't know, maybe this example won't land, but, uh, it's one I was thinking about again, uh, having watched a bunch of Christmas movies, um, so remember that scene when Tim Allen becomes Santa Claus on accident and he like can't figure out exactly how to do it. Uh, so he ends up uh, in this person's house or apartment and he is like pulling a gigantic kayak out of his like tiny bag of toys. Um, and I feel like it's actually a really good scene for kind of illustrating this because like how that kayak gets made or put in Santa's bag is actually irrelevant. The whole miracle is that like Tim Allen as the Santa Claus is delivering the consumptive good, (laughs) no matter how like the logistics of it uh, happen behind the scenes. And that's like the message of the whole movie, right? The whole film is essentially like, it doesn't really matter how Christmas happens. The fact is, it does. I mean, that movie is bizarre for a thousand reasons. Um, it's actually a really dark universe. Uh, but nevertheless, um, that scene, I think, just helps like show a little bit of what this miraculous um, kind of image is like. <laughs> yeah, you're right in all accounts. Uh, <laughs> it is a very dark universe <laughs> where Tim Allen steals the clothes <laughs> off of dead Santa. Um, pretty wild. Uh, Not only that, he's, he accidentally murders Santa Claus, and then Santa, like, softly waves goodbye to him, like, saying goodbye to his existence forever, apparently, completely fine with it, um, just, like, totally resigned to his fate. And then uh, when, like, Tim Allen gets to the North Pole, nobody seems to care that the old Santa died. Like, he must have been, like, a very despotic ruler, is my guess. Um, people don't really mind that he's gone. Uh, but the most, like, the weirdest thing about that, and this goes back to maybe the consumption thing, is the reason that his, uh, ex-wife and her husband both stopped believing in Santa Claus is that they both have, like, uh, disillusioned Christmases tied to not getting a specific gift on Christmas. Yeah. Uh, which is totally bizarre because it's actually a world where Santa Claus does exist, so for whatever reason, he just chose not to give them these gifts. <laughs> uh i mean yeah uh the other reading is that tim allen liberated santa from his sort of terrible life and and now santa's (laughs) like finally free me thank you for freeing me from this prison (laughs) i can finally go to hell where i belong (laughs) yeah exactly well uh bringing this full circle here uh it's it's i think important to recognize the miraculous nature of consumption when we do the act of consumption uh, because I mean, it is exactly the job of like marketers and public relations people um, and branders, you know, to like make, make the, the ways that things are actually produced as, you know, not obvious as possible. I think if people were to start making that connection between the things that they are buying and the people who are making them, it would be really scandalous. Yeah, of course it would be. That's why people don't say it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right, so uh, more on consumption. Baudrillard says, Consumption, like the education system, is a class institution. Not only is there inequality before objects in the economic sense, the purchase, choice, and use of objects are, are governed by purchasing power and by educational level, which is itself dependent upon class background. In short, not everyone has the same objects, just as not everyone has the same educational chances. But more deeply, There is a radical discrimination in the sense that only some people achieve mastery of an autonomous, rational logic of the elements of the environment, functional use, aesthetic organization, cultural accomplishments. Such people do not really deal with objects and do not, strictly speaking, consume, whilst the others are condemned to a magical economy, to the valorization of objects as such, and all of the other things as objects, ideas, leisure, knowledge, and culture. This fetishistic logic is strictly the ideology of consumption. Dean, what does any of that mean, man? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on there. 
I mean, I think uh, one thing the Baudrillard is trying to drive home is that objects, um, we, we presume to live in this world of equality before objects, right? That's the, uh, the revolution of well-being. Um, but in fact, like we all have different relationships to those objects uh, by virtue of all kinds of other contingencies in our lives, oh, like okay. whether or not you're you're sort of educated to be aware of what this object is or that object is. Um, so like one example would be maybe when like parents buy like video games, right, for their kids, like we were just talking about. Um, like in a lot of cases, they don't actually have any idea what they're buying. They just like know what their children want. Um, so they get it for them. And then the kids are the experts. So for the parent is like, the the video game is an object of pure consumption right they're just buying it because like that's what they're supposed to do um buying it for the sake of like hopefully making their kid happy uh whereas like for their child like getting a a video game system or a video game in particular isn't so much a matter of consumption because they sort of have like a, a weirdly intentional or like trained relationship toward it yeah that makes sense huh that's a really interesting way to put it too um it makes gift giving really strange the ideology of gift giving in the United States is that like, you know, it's it, like the whole point of giving a gift is to make someone else really happy. Um, but right. this kind of puts a perverse twist on it. Yeah, totally. Totally. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's all the the big problem about gifts, I guess, in general, in like weird French theory. Um, like, do you, can you ever really give a gift like altruistically? Uh, maybe not. Yeah, definitely not for me. Uh, when I buy my son things, I buy them so I can play with them. <laughs> for sure um so maybe we could add a one kind of one more layer of, of the class issue involved here yeah um with another kind of last uh quote um and this is also really fun because it's like one of the most theological themes in baudrillard at least in this book so he writes uh it is a class logic which imposes salvation by objects that is a salvation by works, which in its democratic nature stands opposed to the aristocratic principle of salvation by grace and election. Now, in the universal consensus, salvation by grace always wins out over salvation by works. This is to some degree what we see among the lower and middle classes, where proving oneself by objects, a salvation by consumption, in its endless process of moral demonstration, battles despairingly to attain a status of personal grace, of God-givenness and predestination. That remains, nonetheless, the preserve of the upper classes who prove their excellence elsewhere in the display of their culture and the exercise of their power. I think this is a really actually like deeply insightful thing about the kind of like political theology of capitalism um, that for people who don't have like a completely exorbitant amount of wealth, um, everything is a salvation by works. Uh, which is awkward because you're trying to attain a situation where it feels like you live in a world of salvation by grace, which is what the wealthy have, right? Like a mm-hmm. completely dispensable, gratuitous uh, ability to to consume objects such that actually the way that you express that is by displaying it. Um, like you can't even fully consume it. You have to sort of like show it off that you've been graced in such a way mm-hmm. um, while the rest of the people have to... Uh, you know, find a, a salvation by works despairingly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, it is a really interesting type of thing. A really interesting. It, it's interesting that he chose that framework to talk about this. Um, you know, someone who's not a Christian, but still, this seems like the most applicable um, metaphor. Uh, it is a really good political theology. Yeah, it also just goes to show you all the Protestants are just trying to be Catholics. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> um. One other kind of interesting thing about this, though, that I think we can draw out is, okay, so, like, we spent this whole episode basically being like, hey, isn't Christmas awful? And, like, yeah, a lot of things about it are. But, listen, I love Christmas a lot. <laughs> like, uh, a stupid amount. I, I don't know what it is. I, I don't know if I'm just totally taken in by the spell of it, but everything about it, I'm a, I'm a Christmas guy. Um, and I think Christmas is weird because, on the one hand, it, like, completely perpetuates this logic, right? Um, so like parents will even like bribe their children with presents basically. Um, oh yeah. Or you like, you might, elf on you the, might like on the shelf, buy though. something. <laughs> yeah, totally. Exactly. Um, you might like buy something for a friend or partner as like fulfilling a moral obligation, right? Um, that salvation by, by goods. Uh, but also like this logic of capital, I think gets questioned in a lot of Christmas songs and stories, uh, so, like, a story like The Gift of the Magi has, like, a really interesting relationship here. And this is, like, a trope that gets taken up in, you know, all your favorite uh, all your favorite ensemble of cartoon characters. Um, so the story goes like this. Like, 
The wife in the original story wants to buy her husband a chain for his pocket watch, but she's so poor uh, that she has to sell her hair to a hairdresser to get the money to buy it. But then when she gives the chain to her husband, it turns out that he ended up selling his watch to buy her a collection of nice combs for her beautiful long hair. Um, And it's like really weird because they're both participating in this salvation by works idea. But the moral of the story is actually that they can't do this. And so they end up feeling the kind of salvation by grace that Christmas, the true meaning of Christmas is supposed to give you. Right. Um, That it's actually like the thought that counts, uh, not the sort of consumption of the specific gift, which can't happen in this case. Um, So Christmas is weird because like it's both the occasion for like completely and totally valorizing consumption but it's also full of all these weird stories that like subvert it you know like ghosts haunting ebenezer scrooge or um i don't know you could pick up like a hundred of weird christmas things that kind of uh contradict like the consumerist nature of christmas yeah that's a really good point but at the same time i I mean like there's a hundred contradictory things about christmas you're right i mean i'm just thinking about all of like the weird like like the biopolitics or the discipline and punishment of Christmas in the sense that like, <laughs> yeah, totally. Santa's watching you. You, get, you gotta get on his good list. You know, you gotta do good things to get on the good list. Sort of salvation by works, man. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I mean, it, it's just, here's what I want to say. Christmas is a site of class struggle, just like everything else. It shouldn't be uh, written off as the privilege of the bourgeois and we should just take it. We should steal it. We should have a war on bourgeois Christmas. Ooh, there we go. That sounds good. Um, the people's Christmas. The people's Christmas. Can I bring up one more quote before we before we wrap up? Because I think it's kind of interesting and worth talking about. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So uh, we've been talking about like mostly like the first half of the book, and I'm going to pull something from the last half of the book that I really love. Um, so uh, when you're a kid, Christmas is all about getting presents. That's totally true. Um, and like, fine. I love I love presents for sure. <laughs> um, I've gotten a lot of good ones in my life. So. Salvation by grace. Um, I guess. I don't know. It's, it's kind of confusing for me right now. Um, but when you're when you're an adult, Christmas becomes, I think, less about getting presents and more about time off from work. And I think that is also very hmm. important. Um, Christmas is like uh, one of the few holidays where like almost everyone gets it off. You know, Christmas, Thanksgiving, that's about it. Um, but, you know, like everything will shut down and it's so awesome. And you might think to yourself, well, at least Christmas has that going for it. Well, let me ruin your day um (laughs) so later in the book Baudrillard has this bit um it's a chapter called mass media sex and leisure and it's pretty horny and pretty good um so Baudrillard says this it it starts on page 69 (laughs) does it really no but it should oh dang well too bad some book publisher out there really messed up (laughs) um all right so Baudrillard says this Let us return for a moment to the specific ideology of leisure. Rest, relaxation, escape, and distraction are perhaps needs, but they do not in themselves define the specific exigency of leisure, which is the consumption of time. Free time is perhaps the entire ludic activity one fills it up with, but it is, first of all, the freedom to waste one's time, and possibly even to kill it. This is why it is insufficient to say that leisure is alienated, because it is merely the time necessary to reproduce labor power. The alienation of leisure is more profound. It does not relate to the direct subordination to working time, but it is linked to the very impossibility of wasting one's time. Okay, so um, I'm going to read one more part and then I'll stop. (laughs) It's too good, though. Um, He goes on to say, we are in an age when men will never manage to waste enough time to be rid of the inevitability of spending their lives earning it. But you can't throw off time like underwear. You can no longer kill it or waste it any more than you can money, since they're both the very expression of the exchange value system. Here, Baudrillard gives kind of like a provocation about uh, the idea of time off or leisure time, that um, in order to actually have leisure time, you have to be able to kill time, to waste it. Um, But uh, he says that we're in an age where where men will never manage to waste enough time to be rid of the inevitability of spending their lives earning it. Um, Here, I want to include that uh, this also includes women, but uh, Baudrillard didn't because, you know, whatever. But the point here is really interesting that even like the time off work is really not time off in the sense that we don't actually control it. That like leisure is a specific orientation in time where we can kind of be wasteful with it. Um, but, uh, you know, to consume time in like whatever way we want. But we really don't have that ability. We're not really actually able to consume our time in the way we want. We can't really just squander it or waste it. 
um, because it's always sort of like in purpose of something else. And that makes our leisure time very complicated. You can't throw off time like underwear. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all of what you said is very good, but I can't really get over that metaphor. You can't throw off time like underwear. He says you can no longer either kill it or waste it. So like you can kill or waste your, your old underwear, I guess. <laughs> well, like <laughs> it, I think it's the idea is that like you can't kill time because you're always on someone else's clock or schedule, you know? Yeah. Like underwear. Like you're always wearing someone else's underwear. <laughs> gross gross get me out of here i don't want to be i don't want to be in this political system anymore if you think if you think about it someone else produced that underwear and it actually belongs to them (laughs) that's true uh just that surplus underpants (laughs) there you go uh unless you are tim allen um in which case if somebody murders you uh he will throw off his time like underwear and you'll have to put it on become santa claus yourself did tim allen wear santa's underwear very good question. Uh, I don't think so because it comes out of his house in his own underwear, and then he just puts on the suit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, There's a lot uh, of weird metaphysics in that movie. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, for sure. It seems like if the suit is what transforms you into Santa, you should have to wear all of it, including the underwear. I agree, including that very weird magical underwear. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that does seem like a good place to wrap it up. I think you're right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you're into this episode, and like, listen, I know you were, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Magnificast. You can also um, buy some stickers or t-shirts from people uh, as post-Christmas gifts. Um, and just remember that like, when you give to them, you're consuming them, and someone made them somewhere. Um, I'm pretty sure the place that... Uh, we, we did some research. The, the place that we uh, get our shirts from ethically sources them but you know what you'll never know what that means because uh labor is alienated from its production so you can buy that's a terrible pitch to sell something but you can still <laughs> buy them on redbull.com slash shop slash the magnificast uh you can also get into our facebook group the magnificast basement um subscribe to us on itunes tell your friends tell your mom um hope they all really dig it too uh the music in this episode is brought to you by amari armstrong and the outro music is from the illogical spoon Hey, also, if you want to give me a Christmas present, or give yourself one, or give it to someone else, you can do that in the form of taking this really great class that I'm going to teach uh, starting in January. Um, It's called Organized Religion, Christianity, and Anti-Capitalism in the U.S. and Canada. It is online through ICS. Uh, It costs $90 Canadian, which is $67 American, which works out to like $7 or $5 per class period, um, over 13 classes. And uh, we trace all kinds of really interesting ways that Christians resisted capitalism um, and that people who resist capitalism chatted around uh, Christians. So it's going to be a really great class. I'm really excited to teach it. And if I get enough people in it, I'll be able to make some more. So it would be great uh, if you consumed that particular thing uh, this year. (laughs) You got to consume something. So let it be that, I suppose. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church, we'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation, never get tired, never bored, don't worry someday. There'll be no damn between us and our Lord.